young lovers, and welcome to a Lauren Bacall tribute episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, as we mentioned in a couple, a couple episodes ago, and as everybody knows, uh, Lauren Bacall passed away um, about a month ago or so. And so we're going to talk about one of the films that she starred in, uh, 1953's How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, we're also going to get to a film that was released 50 years later. She's not in it, but it harkens back to that era. Um, Down with Love, starring Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor. Uh, we're also going to talk about Louis Lumiere, who's our person of the week, because his birthday was is, is coming up. What day is it, Sean? Do you know? Uh, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Louis Lumiere... Uh, October 5th. October 5th. It's his uh, 150th birthday. All right. Uh, so we're going to celebrate that and also pick our Cinema Central uh, early, early cinema uh, film. So like pre-1910. We're going to make our pick for that. That's, that's the guideline, right? 1910? That's the cutoff? Sure. Okay. Uh, we're also going to complain about a bunch of stuff, like usual. Uh, do some what's Sean watching and all that good stuff. So uh, without further ado, let's hear a clip uh, from Lauren Bacall, Marilyn Monroe, and Betty Grable in How to Marry a Millionaire. Just watch the fur fly as the most talked about girls in Hollywood go out loaded for big game. Monroe, Grable, and Bacall, adding their own wonderful dimensions to the eye-filling dimensions of CinemaScope, letting you in on the grand and glorious adventures of three fascinating females who pool their beauty in the greatest plot against mankind since Helen of Troy, Marie Antoinette, and Venus de Milo. New York, New York, you busy, busy, razzle-dazzle, scandalous place. New York. Try it with easy money, try it to blow it down. But in town, dying to show it. Take off on Broadway, by taxi, by subway, the land of the town, the merry-go-round. New York. In Central Park, romantic babies and their fellas rendezvous in the dark. All right, so How to Marry a Millionaire starts with Lauren Bacall and Marilyn Monroe and Betty Grable as three young models who decide they want to marry millionaires, and the way they go about it is by renting a really fancy apartment that they can't afford and deciding to seduce only rich men and not poor men. Uh, they each uh, pair off and have a series of misadventures wherein they all fail at what they set out to do, but end up happily ever after. Do you think that pretty much comes sums up the plot? Yeah, I think that, that that's a succinct way of do, of saying it. Um, there, there is, you know, there is the uh, pre 
story uh, kind of uh, musical section as well. Yeah, we get to that later because it it really doesn't have anything at all to do with the movie. Absolutely nothing. Uh, Millionaire was was one of the very first CinemaScope films. Uh, It was actually, it was released after The Robe, which is technically the first um, but it was, it was, uh, I believe it started filming first. So, uh, part of the, the CinemaScope thing had like this, uh, uh, magnetic soundtrack in, in like super fancy stereo or something. So they wanted to show that off. So they started with an orchestra playing in widescreen and it's really weird and it has nothing to do with the movie. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and it goes on. A little too long, if I if I must say, but um, but yeah, we can get to that later. That has, yeah. like you said, it has nothing to do with the movie itself. Uh, but yeah, that is a succinct uh, summation of the of the film. Um, yeah, and it's 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 fine. It's it it's 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 nice. It's it's a romantic comedy. It's not anything that you know you you gave it you gave it three stars on on letterboxd and and yeah that's that's about right it, it's okay well it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses yeah and, you know it's it's not you know it it's their peaks and valleys as you go through this movie um i would know, I, I would th- say it, it has two real strengths and one real weakness and are you referring to the three leads when you mm, say that yes i am <laughs> Uh, and not just you know them as actresses, but also just their storylines. I, th- I think two of them are much better than than the third. I'm I'm interested to see which one you th- you think is the okay. So so uh, let's break them down. Let's go through them all here. Okay. Um, so uh, so uh, Lauren Bacall is the uh, ostensible star of the film. I think it, I, I'm not sure if she or or Monroe was the bigger star at at this point. All three of them were were of course superstars. But uh, according to the poster that I'm looking at right now, which looks like it was it's a poster from, you know, the original release, uh, Marilyn Monroe's name comes first. Yeah. So, I'll, you know, but this is also like 19. This it was released in 1953 and it's like to peak Marilyn in, in that year. That's the same year as uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. So yeah. So anyway, Lauren McCall, she's she's the uh, she's the brains of the group. She's exactly. she's uh, she's a uh, a divorcee named uh, Shotzi, and she uh, it's her it's her scheme that uh, that all the girls go along with, and she uh, uh, carries on a, a a romance with William Powell, of all people. Uh, <laughs> He plays the the old man. Yeah, he he's he's an old man, and he's uh, he's a rich uh, Texan, and he's he is a uh, a widower, and they carry on a relationship, and and he eventually leaves, and she's kind of sad because you know he had a lot of money, and she liked him, but she didn't she wasn't really in love with him, and at the same time she's being pursued by. This guy that she thinks is poor, but who we know is actually like a gazillionaire. Right. Tom Brookman, played by Cameron Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, she thinks he works. She met him in, or he got, he met them in a garage or something. So she thinks he's like a grease monkey or something like that. Um, yeah, because he never wears a tie. He never wears a tie. That's the, the yeah. true sign of a poor person. Exactly. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and I, I, I liked her story. I liked Florence McCall. I, I, of, of all of the the clothes in the film, and and there are some great clothes in the film. I think I think the calls are the best. Uh, it's funny you should say that. This movie was nominated for one Oscar, and it was for costume design. And I agree with you up to a point. Uh, the worst costume in the entire movie is worn by Lauren Bacall uh, at the end. She wears this thing with these, the most, it's like the puffy shirt from Seinfeld. There's these puffy <laughs> sleeves. Um, that yeah, I think I know what you're talking out. about. Yeah. Oh my God, that was a train wreck. And it, and unfortunately, she's wearing it during kind of a climactic scene emotionally and for her character and stuff. And it's, um, it's, it's hard to watch. Um but I, yeah, I agree. She, uh, the costume design overall is great. And, you know, they really utilize it. There's a scene, you know, as, you know, since they are models where they just basically come out modeling clothes for, um, for Tom uh, Brookman. So, uh, you know, there's and, plenty and of opportunity for clothing to be displayed. I, I love that, 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 that was a thing that you could like go to a store and, and models didn't like work in, in magazines or on television or something. They worked in stores and rich people would come in and ask them to model the clothes for them. <laughs> right. And you see it in, in movies from the period all the time. And it's just, it's so cool. I, <laughs> I wish there probably are still stores that do that, but only like the, they don't cater to your kind. Though. Yeah. Only like, <laughs> you know, rap stars get to go to them, but <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't that be neat just to go down to the mall and just, you know, eh, let's see these uh, ladies try on this, these outfits. Rap stars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, a girl's got to get by somehow, right? And it's, It seems like such a great career. Yeah, well, you should apply. <laughs> yeah, I, I could totally do that. Oh, I'm sure Lil Wayne would love to see you modeling some. Hey, uh, there are plenty of of tall, skinny, awkward uh, uh, hip hop stars who need someone to show them <laughs> what they would look like in in a flannel shirt. That's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's Lauren McCall. So you liked Lauren McCall's story. You're like, on board with that one. I'm 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 on board with the Lauren McCall story, which is okay. is the central story, and it's the most. You know, it's the only one with any kind of uh, uh, attempted emotional resonance sure. to it. Um, okay. Mostly, mostly because of William Powell's performance. William Powell is great, and um, I, I, we can talk about it a little bit later on. But um, one of my complaints about them, we'll get to it later. I'll, we'll get to it later. Okay, let's keep going. And so, then second, second is is Marilyn Monroe. Uh huh. And. Uh, She's got this like uh, this really silly conceit where where she needs to wear glasses, but she won't wear them because uh, she thinks that they make him make her look ugly and that women or that men won't hit on her if she's wearing glasses. So she's like constantly bumping into things, and it's 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 really dumb, but I think it's really funny. <laughs> I I think this, uh, this, I'm just gonna come out and say it. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe makes this movie watchable. She is the best part of it. Um, I, every time I watch a Marilyn Monroe movie, I feel bad saying that I'm surprised by her talents, but she's, you know, she's, she's kind of, you know, in our culture, she's just, uh, the sex pot, you know, now, or, you know, whatever. And she's, you know, her, the icon of her is used on all kinds of stuff and you forget like really kind of what kind of performances she was, you know, able to give. And she, every time she's, she's so good and she's such a funny comedian, um, 
and and I love every minute with Marilyn Monroe in this movie. Her bumping into walls, um, her reactions to things when she greets people but doesn't know who it is because she can't see them and stuff. She is the MVP in this movie, and I just love her to death. I mean, I think she's fantastic. Yeah, she's 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 fantastic, and she's a very different kind of of sexy than Lauren Bacall. Like Lauren Bacall is famously insolent. Uh, that was the the you know like the new thing that she brought to to Hollywood movies in in the the Howard Hawks films, which we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. Marilyn Monroe's not like that at all. Marilyn Monroe is adorable. She is so adorable. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I, I I wish this movie uh, focused more on her because she kind of disappears for a large chunk of the film and we're going to get to why she disappears here in a second. Um, uh, and But when she comes back around, the, the scene that she has on the airplane... Um, yeah. It's, with it's the, so great and it's actually, it's it's so silly, but... And the guy that she's acting with is not very good, but it you almost kind of you know, feel a twinge of emotion in this silly scene on the airplane. Yeah, she she completely sells it. And and there's like a, it's really difficult to play naive like that. Like, I really think it is. And she, she, she really sells it. It's, it's phenomenal. It's a, it's a wonderful performance. I really, really enjoy it. And, and I, this happens every time with Marilyn Monroe. I haven't seen a lot of her movies. I've seen, obviously, the Billy Wilder stuff and um, a few other things. Um, but... She is a treasure. I really, really love her. So, yeah, I mean, this this film isn't as good as as Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah, but it's better than so. I think. Well, it's, I think, yeah, I think it's better than the Seven Year Itch. Yeah, um, I think she's really good in that too. But um, she's yeah. good in that. But but Tom Ewell is is so bad, and the yeah. movie itself is just not good. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but. It it's not gentlemen prefer blondes, um, and that that's the 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 closest um, I would say comparison to this movie. Obviously, thematically and stuff of kind of the gold digger kind of thing, um, and it's not close to you know some like it hot or uh, yeah, I, like gentlemen prefer blondes is it takes a, a very similar premise where the the women are trying to uh, the Monroe character is the gold digger one, and her friend uh, uh, Jane Russell is more just like looking for love she's uh, looking for beefcakes out by the pool if you if, yeah. if you remember correctly <laughs> that's one of my favorite scenes yeah but, uh, uh, <laughs> but it you know it takes that present that premise and and explores it in interesting ways and kind of and comments on it and you know it's after more than just you know the silly comedy and 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 music and and a good time Whereas How to Marry a Millionaire, I don't think is is nearly that ambitious. No, 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 no. And the great thing about um, Gentlemen for Prefer Blondes is is the relationship between uh, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, and 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 you don't really get a lot of the the female friendship stuff here. They're just right. they're three roommates, but they never really hang out or or talk. At all. Well, yeah, they're separated for, you know, they get together for the opening scene, which is actually a great scene of them on the rooftop mm-hmm. or the terrace or whatever. And they're all kind of bouncing off each other. That's a really good scene. And, and they do well. But then I think um, that's the only scene with just the three of them together. Yeah. And then the, the rest film. of the movie, they're all separated by, the, you know, going off onto their romantic, you know, entanglements or whatever, uh, which leads us to the third um, and 
presumably the the section you did not care for. Uh, yeah, uh, that would be the Betty Grable Betty Grable section. Uh, I think I think Betty Grable is is fine, but her story is just really dumb. It's pretty bad. It, I think it, the, the guy that she's involved with is the most loathsome character. He's pretty bad. Um, he, I'll, I might have another contender, but uh, he's he's pretty bad. And her story, it it feels like that's the largest like standalone chunk in the movie because she leaves town. Well, and it, goes. I bet if you count up the running time, it's it's pretty even between the three of them. It just seems much it longer. Seems long. That's probably true. Uh, yeah, she, you want to get back to New York um, as soon as possible. Um, yeah, so she's she's with this married guy, and they go to Maine because he says he has a lodge, and apparently she thinks that's an Elks Lodge because where there'll be more men there and. Because, yeah, because yeah, that's dumb. And then she meets a forest ranger who tells her that he, you know, shows her all of the trees that are his, and she thinks she he owns all of that land. It's just, it's dumb. It's dumb, yeah. and it's not funny. And she doesn't really get to do much except to act uh, daffy, which is yeah. fine, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree. It's the de- it's definitely the dead weight uh, of the three stories. Um, you know, I would I like as you I probably tell the Marilyn Monroe section to me is gold. Uh, Bacall's is is good, um, but my problem is is I do not like uh, Tom Brookman, the the main guy, the guy that she ends up with at the end. Um, the guy's kind of a dick. Like like the whole movie, he's walking around with a golf club, like some, you know, jackass. Um, he does that, you know, modeling thing that you're so into, but like, it's kind of skeezy. Um, he's totally, oh, it's, it's very skeezy. It's totally skeezy. Um, and then, and then he's, you know, contrasted with William Powell, who's just like a really sweet natured, genuine, nice guy. Um, his character, you know, knows that she doesn't love him but but he's you know okay with that and he's you know willing to work with it um and this other guy just seems like a a rich playboy who you know is is just kind of a jerk um so i that that to me is the real failing here is that um when it comes down to it she goes she ends up with the younger richer man um when William Powell is so adorable, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I don't know. I yeah. just never connected with Tom Brookman. I just thought the guy was a, you know, a complete waste, but yeah, I, I think but I, 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 no, I, can, I can see why that would be more attractive to, to Bacall though. Yeah. But it makes me, uh, it makes me like her character less. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's a, it is what it is, you know. I think if someone else played that character, it might have been a little better. Um, but I don't think uh, Cameron Mitchell is is up to the the task that everybody else. You know, I think every I yeah. think he's outshined here by William Powell and Lauren Bacall. Um, yeah, we, which, we we've talked about this before. We we talked about it. I think in in, in Pitch Perfect, the, these romantic comedies that are. Uh, anchored by by female stars, very rarely have male stars that are as as interesting or as charismatic as them. 
Yeah. Well, we'll be ta- we'll be talking about one that breaks that rule later in the show. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think Down with Love is a is a great exception to that. But yeah. but especially in this classic studio era, it's it's uh, outside of like your your Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn screwball comedy type things. Uh, it's it's unusual to find. I I guess maybe it's just in the 1950s. I don't know. Well, you get the same thing. It's the Disney Prince syndrome where, you know, the Disney Prince, I mean, they're all interchangeable, bland, faceless, you know, they're just a plot point, really, you know. Right. Like, and, and, you know, we, we praise gentlemen prefer blondes, but, but I, I couldn't tell, I've seen it three or four times. I couldn't tell you who any of the, the male actors are in the film. Yeah, but they're also, they're, they're so hunky. (laughs) Yeah, no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but uh, I feel like, but like you said, I think uh, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, there's so much more to it than just, you know, that aspect of it that it sure. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in a movie like that, where in a movie like this, which kind of hinges on that, you know, it's kind of a failing on the movie's part, you know. I mean, like I said, I this yeah, and I fine. think, what, what do you think of this movie is, is saying about women? in 1953 do you think it's saying anything like it's this uh i've been been thinking about this kind of you know thinking about uh with down with love and with the movie or with the music that we're we're going to play this week it it seems to me like there's this decade that we think of of the 50s and it really kind of starts with 1953 and it ends in 1963 uh because you know the first few years of of the 50s it's you're still in like the post world war ii era you have the korean war going on you have like mccarthyism but uh you know and i don't want to be all uh you know violate david boardwell's rules against talking (laughs) about current events but it does seem that like with with eisenhower and kennedy you know there's a different perspective on american life in american films and i think how to million millionaire is kind of the the beginning of that and then, like the the Doris Day Rock Hudson films are kind of the the end of that, and and those are the films that that Down with Love are in uh, in conversation with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we 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 see these women, and, and and pointedly, there's no reference to the war. I don't think. Like if no. if the film was set five years earlier, Bacall would be a widow, like her husband would have died in the war, but right. instead she's just a, a divorcee. Right. Uh, and so they're, they're, you know, uh, and they're very much caught up in like the pursuit of material wealth. They want to be rich. Right. Which, which would seem really weird in 1947 because everyone is kind of poor at the end of the war. Oh yeah. The, the, yeah. The but economy now, completely changed in, in a very short amount of time and that became the ideal. Right, and now and now they're like at the beginning of this this massive uh, economic expansion. So you start you start to see movies about about celebrating gold diggers again. Right. Yeah. I, well, you know, there are some. You know, it's kind of a. I don't think this movie is ultimately trying to say anything. You know, I don't think there's there's you know the screenwriters or whatever were trying to 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 push an you know an agenda or whatever. Um, you know, there are some elements about this that. I think are nice. I like the idea of three somewhat independent women, you know, living, you know, 
on their own and, and going off and, you know, kind of plotting their own course. Unfortunately, their own course is to just land a uh, rich guy, you know, <laughs> um, right. which is a shame. Um, I would have liked to, like we said in the beginning, um, I would have liked to have seen more scenes of them just hanging out the three of them without guys around and just like, you know, kicking back. Cause I think that seems like, really like, great. In, like in death proof or something. Yeah. You know, like just have them um, just kind of shooting the breeze and, and, you know, uh, building some sort of relationship between the three of them instead of, um, making everything about men, you know, um, but it's nice to see, you know, it's nice to see those opening establishing shots of, um, New York city and these women on the go, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're living the city life and, and all those things. And it's kind of exciting, you know, what, what did you think about the use of, uh, of CinemaScope? I love, okay. Uh, my first note, uh, when I was, when I was watching this was scope with an exclamation mark. Um, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's early yet. And I mean, it's not, it could have been used for more expansive CinemaScope ness but those opening shots of new york city which is funny uh down with love does the same thing and i mean obviously it's kind of a cliche um you get it in manhattan too or whatever but um yeah and and down with love actually opens with the same fox cinemascope yep. logo which yeah. uh we'll, we'll we'll talk about that when it comes to it but uh the interiors the interior shots really struck me as as the the director uh, uh gene negalesco which is really hard to pronounce uh, he, he shoots the interiors in, in, in really long takes, which is, is very unusual for, for a Hollywood film from the period. And it's, uh, it's, it's actually really neat because he has the widescreen frame where he, he gets all of the, the characters in there. And then he just holds the shot and lets the actresses do their thing without, without cutting it up like you would in, uh, you know, a typical one, three, three film. And it's a really, uh, uh, it's it's really telling that one of the first you know super widescreen films that ever got made had a much longer shot length than than the typical Hollywood style film because you you even see that kind of thing today um, when actually you see the opposite where you see skin, cinemascope films edited the same way as as uh, as uh, films that are in one eight five and it looks really ugly. Right. Yeah. You don't get it kind of defeats the purpose you want to kind of breathe in the, uh, the environment, you know, the atmosphere and, you know, these, this apartment that they live in is this expansive, humongous apartment, you know, uh, penthouse suite kind of thing, um, which is, uh, doubly, you know, feels larger once they start pawning off all of the furniture and stuff. And so you see these shots where the hallway just goes so far back, you know, and, that's great, you know, and if you were doing close-ups the whole time or cutting between, you know, Monroe and Bacall or whatever, you wouldn't get that sense of space that you do here. Um, and and also in scenes like the modeling scene, you know, you've got um, Brookman in the, in the foreground and just like a row of, of models, you know, just behind him, uh, which just shows, you know. It's like tiers of models, like the, the Ziegfeld cake. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of this, William Powell. <laughs> there you go. Previous uh, George Sanders show selection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, no, it's great. I mean, I, um, I, I love stuff like that, you know, um, when cinema really um, 
is I don't want to say an event kind of thing, but it really, you know, uses the medium to just do so go big, you know, um, I find that fun. So, yeah. So this movie's, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. You know, it's, it's a, it's a pleasant diversion. It's not going to unseat gentlemen prefer blondes or anything, um, from people's lists, but, uh, you know, I, I do like uh, Betty Grable's name is. I, you said Shotzi. Uh, Lauren Bacall's name is Shotzi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Betty Grable actually has the best name, Loco Dempsey, <laughs> mm. and they have a little to do about. Uh, you know, is is Loco just a a funny nickname, or is she actually totally insane? <laughs> yeah, I wish she was. I know. Me too. Um, Instead of just kind of dumb and whiny. Yeah, uh, I I agree. I agree. Uh, I guess we we started talking about the the music before oh, yes. before we talked about the rest of it and we said we we're going to come back to it um all i really want to say is uh it's uh the opening thing is is alfred newman's uh, uh street scene street. street scene which is really just a a, a bad rip off of of rhapsody in blue. blue i know that's exactly what i thought too i was like you know, this is really watered down stuff here. And and uh, the rest of the score is is either Gershwin stuff or stuff that is just not quite Gershwin enough to pay the royalties for it. Right. And it's it's really distracting and and really bugged me. And there were uh, also there's uh, the only singing in the film. This this is a music. This is a movie that that like Down with Love feels like it could have very easily been a musical and and probably should have been. But there is like one bit of choral singing in the film, and it's uh, it's uh, it's like in the introduction to to New York. It's like a New York, New York thing, and it's it's like a pale imitation of the New, New York, New York song from from On the Town by uh, Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Right. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what's going on here. It's like the if they're like doing an homage to Gershwin and previous New York films, or they're just ripping it off. Um, I assume they're just ripping it off. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. They, they spent all the money on the cinema scope, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that bugged me. That was probably my second least favorite thing about the film. Oh, poor Betty Grable. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, so that's our discussion of How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, uh, tying in this with that this week, um, kind of synchronicity here, uh, there's the Frank Sinatra album, Songs for Young Lovers. Uh, this was your suggestion, Sean. I'm not going to take the credit. Uh, which coincidentally uh, was recorded over two days. The first day uh, was November 5th, 1953, uh, which was the same day How to Marry a Millionaire uh, debuted in cinema. Um, and so we're going to play some selections off of that today. Um, and this is My Funny Valentine. My funny valentine Sweet comic valentine You make me smile With my heart Your looks are laughable Unphotographable Yet you're my favorite work of art 
Is your figure less than Greek? Is your mouth a little weak when you open it to speak? Are you smart? But don't change your hair for me. Not if you care for me. Stay, little Valentine. Stay. Each day is Valentine's Day. Is your figure less than Greek? Is your mouth? All right. Well, uh, welcome back to the show. It's time for some news here. Uh, we have a couple of things, or a few things. Uh, once again, it's going to be just us complaining because we're old fogies and that's what we do. Uh, first thing is this one is really just kind of weird. Um, I, I can't wrap my head around why this is in existence, but. Um, Netflix has now created a, what it's called like a spoiler space on their website where you, you go in there and they just inundate you with spoilers for movies, like, uh, that just come fast and furious and they just, uh, tell you, you know, the twists at every, at the turn of, you know, every movie. Um, I don't know if it's so that you're caught up. And so that you can like have that discussion with people around the water cooler without having actually to do the work of watching a movie. I can you do you have any idea why they did this, Sean? No, it it <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me at all. Like, is was there a was there a demand for such a thing, or are people out there saying give us more spoilers? Like, right. I only I only see the opposite. Right, like it's it it's most <laughs> back backwards thing in the world and uh i don't know why they're spending time working on something like that but it beats me i don't like have you actually are are spoilers hard to find right you can all go to wikipedia or something right i mean it's all it's available if you want it yeah or read you know some film criticism right um have you have you actually gone to because i don't have netflix anymore i'm looking for it right now okay um and I think, you know, we should talk about, you know, in terms of spoilers, as as listeners to The George Sanders Show should know, you know, you and I don't really are concern ourselves with spoilers. Um, we we both feel like, it, especially the movies that we talk about or, you know, dive into, um, you can't really spoil something like that. And, and if a movie, to me, in my opinion... Spoilers, I mean, if there's something, a twist in a movie or something like that, that makes that gives a little added oomph to a film, that's great. But if a, if a movie's quality depends solely on, like, that third act reveal for it to be interesting, I don't really care for movies like that um, because they're kind of just, like, tricks to me. Um, that's my personal opinion in, in regards to those things. I wouldn't go out of my way to, you know ruin a movie for somebody you know but i also feel like there's so much more to dive into in a movie than like a a plot twist that comes uh late in the game or something like that so yeah i mean like my my general pithy rule is that if if a movie can be spoiled by the reveal of a plot twist then it's not a good movie right that's 
yeah what I so just said. so yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry i i went to the site and that's I, all right that's i saw right. i saw a spoiler and what it was 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 just a video clip of a scene from uh one of the episodes in breaking bad that <laughs> spoils something and that's why it. would you do that i that it's just it's just weird if anybody knows why if someone out there can explain the logic behind this um i would love to hear it i really would so let us know it's like um, i I just I don't understand because people who don't care about spoilers aren't going to want to watch this, and people who do care about spoilers aren't going to want to watch it. Well, so, and if there's and if you're just going straight into a clip of a show that like so you didn't type in Breaking Bad, it just showed it. No, it, it shows you a random spoiler. <laughs> like <laughs> so, there's no context for people. Like if you no. haven't seen Breaking Bad, you don't even know what's going on. Yeah. I mean that's just weird. Um, so that's stupid. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. I don't get it. Yeah, um, I, 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 I tweeted something out the other day, and and it's it's really true. And I, I've, I, I've realized that that the the sentiment I express most often in my life is is I don't understand what that means. <laughs> well, that's just a sign of you getting older. I mean, yeah, it's just pe- people talk to me. Netflix does things, and I just I don't understand what's right. going on in no, the world around compute. me. No, I know, I know. I just I don't I don't get it. I just embrace my confusion. You know, whatever, <laughs> let it go. Um, another so, confusing, annoying, yeah. weird thing um, is we. So I guess we could set this up a little bit. Yeah, we, we've talked about it on the show before, but but that was a while ago. I don't think we've mentioned it for a long time. Uh, we used to we used to work for Landmark Theaters in Seattle. We worked at the at the Metro Cinema, which does not exist anymore. And for five years, we ran a a repertory film series. We played once a week uh, old movies that you know we we talked them into letting us play. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a uh, a labor of love on our part, but yeah, uh, we, but we went out of our way. I mean, you wrote a proposal, and we I mean we spent a lot of time and and effort on on those uh, screenings. Yeah, and you continued to do it for for years after you stopped working. For, yeah, I wasn't even for getting Landmark. paid for it. I know yeah. I wasn't even getting paid anymore. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that that whole time we were we were doing it, we were trying to get them to to expand it, to let us do it for more than, than one day a week, to do it at other theaters, on, you know, all the kinds of things that you do when you're trying to get a company to, you know, let you do stuff. And we would, you know, constantly just get ignored <laughs> by all of the higher-ups at, at Ignored is a, good, is a good phrase for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, I'm, 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 reading, I'm, reading, I'm reading the Twitter uh-huh. The other day, and and somebody tweets about uh, uh, a showing coming up at the at the landmark, the the flagship theater of the company in in Los Angeles, and it's coming up uh, Monday. It's a double feature of Laura and and White Heat, which sounds cool. So you know, I click on that, and it's a series that they have that is it's called Anniversary Classics. <laughs> and apparently it's been running for a while at the at the landmark and you know the with the the classics title 
I feel, you know, a little bit plagiarized and with the, <laughs> the, the real stretch to come up with a, a theme for your series, I definitely feel plagiarized, <laughs> but the, the choices of the movies that they've done, uh, I think are, it's are, pretty poor. are, are kind of questionable and they seem to be, uh, based around who is available in the Los Angeles area to come and hang out at the landmark, right? Because all of the, all of the shows have special guests, so they're mostly special guests who don't have anything else going on. So you get like you know Russ Hamblin and Dennis Quaid and Richard Chamberlain and you know Caleb Deschanel, right? Or Haskell Wexler, who is apparently available for anything. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean they've they've played some good movies. They played uh, they played the Black Stallion, which we talked about on the show. They played Richard Lester's Three Musketeers. Uh, they played the Right Stuff, which is a movie that I love. I don't know that we've ever talked about it. Uh, well, and also, Laura, I mean, Laura and White Heat are. are good movies too I yeah mean, they're both yeah, terrific yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And on her majesty's secret service uh believe it or not george lazenby available available really yeah, yeah. they got a bond huh but uh you know and uh you know they got gina rollins for a woman under the influence which is cool regardless right that is pretty cool yeah uh, yeah it's weird well you know it's funny and you know i don't want to you know belabor the point or anything or, or talk about this for too long but um it was funny to see um, in the wake of our series, they started doing it uh, elsewhere, even in Seattle at the, at the landmarks in Seattle, they started doing it um, at the Harvard exit for a little bit. They did like a summer series of um, movies uh, that wasn't like a midnighter thing or anything. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know how any of that stuff went. Cause I burned bridges and uh, <laughs> never went back. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, Pioneers, oh pioneers! <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I, I've long maintained that this that this kind of thing is is inevitable. Um, it'll be it'll be digital. It'll all be digital. It won't be on film, at least not at at for profit theaters. Like, right? And you know, film film is always better. Period. Film film is always better, but it's it's you can't do that at a for profit theater. It's just too expensive to get prints of movies, especially when you're shipping them around the country, which which isn't a problem at the landmark because you know it's it's in it's Los Angeles. Yeah. But but the idea of of a, a digital repertory of of these movies being available to see in theaters, even if they're in, you know, subpar, you know, DCPs or, you know, or whatever digital projection instead of instead of you know a, a pristine thirty five millimeter print, I I still think there is value in that in bringing in bringing repertory films to places that don't have the museum of the moving image. Right. Well, you know the the impetus for us doing it at the Metro. The Metro was a multiplex. You know, we had ten screens. Um, it was a dinky you know ten screens, but it was ten screens, and the thought was just you know why not utilize these 10 screens to a more diverse programming uh, schedule where sure dedicate nine screens to the new stuff coming out, but just have one screen that's perpetually repertory. There's no, it's a win-win. Like you diversify your audience. You get people that would come out for stuff like that. Um, It doesn't, you know, affect the theater really at all. If you, um, 
you know, we 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 turned a profit doing yeah. what we were doing, and we made more money than the movies that we were uh, bumping. You know, so um, and you're actually you're you are seeing this starting to happen, like the uh, Cinemark. Um, and all these other places are kind of doing these Saturday morning, you know, some, didn't they just run Ghostbusters across the country and stuff? And yeah, yeah, um, you're seeing you're seeing it pop up more and more. And I, I wish the the programming was more adventurous, right? Like we we yeah. we tried to have you know, like we do with the show, we tried to have a, a really wide variety of the stuff that we would that we would play, but. Uh, for better or for worse, I mean, yeah. we had some some pretty big bombs in our in our day, but we ran stuff to. I mean, we sold out the red shoes, Gone with the Wind, um, but then yeah, then we would you know kind of have the you know the leash was a little longer after doing something like that, and then we could run something like uh, Jean Dielman or um, Pennies from Heaven or something like that. So um, yeah. So yeah, it would be nice to see a little bit more adventurous programming when the cost of doing it is uh, is negligible. Is negligible to to a big multiplex like the Landmark or something like that. So yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, if you're in LA, hey, go see, go to the Landmark. <laughs> tell them tell them Sean sent you. Yeah. They'll <laughs> <laughs> kick you out on your your fanny. Um, last thing, news wise. Um, we're going to talk about it briefly. I, I, I always want to give people a warning here. Uh, we're going to talk about baseball for a second. Uh, season's winding down. There are, uh, let's see, today, yeah, there's four, uh, three more days of the regular season of baseball. And, and uh, we should note that we're recording this a week in advance because... Oh, that's right. <laughs> because I'm not going to be here uh, next week at the normal time that we record. So this show is going to go up uh, around October 3rd. That's but right. uh, today is September... 25th yes yeah yeah boy this postseason sure is exciting sean isn't it <laughs> yeah well you you mentioned on the last episode that you weren't going to be watching a lot of movies while i was in vancouver because you would be watching baseball and playoff baseball and i i am curious now what playoff baseball you're going to be watching because the mariners have lost i think pretty much every game since the last episode we recorded <laughs> well you know it's not just them the al so and, you know, as I mentioned on the baseball episode or whenever we talked, you know, I, I grew up an A's fan and I and I my heart still, you know, goes pitter patter for the A's and the A's have had a wonderful season uh, that has just gone totally in the toilet. I mean, like like the A's are like giving it to the Mariners. Like, come on, why don't you win a couple of games and get back into this wild card race? And then the Mariners can't do it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's just it's the most Mariners thing ever. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you read the 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 great uh, Seattle Mariners blog, the USS Mariner. I do. Uh, Jeff Sullivan had a, a, a terrific post about this Mariners collapse. Uh, I think it went up yesterday, and yeah, he just he just says everything everything that that every Seattle Mariners fan is thinking that that yeah this this was nice but you knew it was going to end badly because they're just the, the worst Mariners. um I would like to single out I would like to say Jeff Sullivan is uh, a national treasure that yeah. guy is absolutely astounding he is hilarious he's insightful he's really smart he writes for fan graphs um, and every Tuesday I read his fan graphs chat because he the guy is just a delight and uh He's no one suffered more over Mariners baseball than Jeff Sullivan. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely hilarious. But you know what? It's funny though. 
Mariners won today. I'm going to the game tomorrow against the Angels, and uh, they're still in the hunt. I don't. My faith is is completely shattered. But um, it's better than it was last year. It's better than it was uh, two years ago. It, um, it it is. But you you had to know this was inevitable. This oh yeah. This team was not. No, good. they weren't built for this. They weren't built for uh, getting this close to uh, yeah, playoffs. They they should never have been this close. This this they're. I know. It's they're bad. Yeah, they are really bad. They and, are, and they were they were obviously bad at the beginning of the year. Like there were obvious, glaring holes in the team. Yeah, from the very beginning, like it, it's a miracle that they won as many games as they have. It's absolutely astounding. It's yeah. absolutely astounding. And uh, you know, yeah, it, they. We, well, we talked about it when we when we talked about the Mariners a while ago or whatever. But you know, they made some moves. You know, I think Robinson Cano, that guy's pretty incredible. Like, I love watching that guy play baseball. But they didn't really build around that much at all. Um, they kind of just got some spare parts. This this is a team that in in 2014 has had one of its better offensive players be Andy Chavez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and Robinson Cano is the only one batting over 300, right? I mean, yeah, so it's, yeah, it, it's, it's no good. But good news is, as a Bay Area boy, uh, today in, in, in speaking of uh, kind of patheticness, the Giants clinched the, uh, uh, you know, a wild card playoff spot. Um, but that's just because the Brewers are terrible and the Brewers lost. So there was no champagne broken out or anything over that. It was just uh, they won by default. <laughs> so so there you default. go. It's the only yeah. way we ever win. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, baseball, it's almost it's almost over. And uh, then we'll go into our five-month drought and it'll be really sad. But Frankly, uh, I'm, 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 you know, it makes me a terrible Mariners fan, but I'm actually kind of glad that this happened. So I don't have to worry about missing playoff baseball while I'm at the film festival because yeah. then I'd feel really guilty. Yeah. About not watching the Mariners lose in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. And now I, I don't have and now I don't have to I have don't that have to problem. Work. Okay. Uh well speaking of uh you watching movies, um let's talk about you know some of the stuff you've you're, you've watched over the last week. What what have you been watching? Maybe something in preparation for your 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 voyage? Uh, well, I tried, but I didn't. I didn't get very far. I, I watched some stuff, but but what I've mostly been watching is uh, uh, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Ah, yes. and I've been watching it a lot. Uh, as as regular listeners of the show will know, I I have uh, kids, and my daughter is is going through a lot of movie watching phases lately. She's been watching Disney movies. Uh, she watches. Uh, like the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse on TV, it's it's not good. Uh, but but the last couple of days, she's been watching Snoopy movies, specifically The Great Pumpkin, over and over again. We've also watched Thanksgiving and You're Not Elected, Charlie Brown, and uh, the Mayflower one, which is uh, called Boat Snoopy. Uh, but The Great Pumpkin is, I think it's easily the best of all of the the Peanuts films, and I really, yeah, uh, much more so than the Christmas special. Mm. Yeah, I uh, 
I haven't seen it in years, uh, but actually I made a point this year of I, I am going to watch uh, The Great Pumpkin on Halloween. Um, we're going to we're going to have a little to do at my house. Um, you know, we get three, maybe four trick or treaters, um, but we're going to do some pumpkin carving at our house. And I'm just going to throw The Great Pumpkin on um, and just have a little a little shindig. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it, actually, because I know you are huge. You and your family are huge Peanuts fans. And um, you've talked about the warm blanket, happiness is warm blanket and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I want to go back and revisit that stuff because I haven't seen it since I was, you know, in uh, single digits. So, Well, the, the Great Pumpkin, the... For one thing, the animation is better. It's got some of the the coolest images of of any uh, of Charles Schultz's career. Really, uh, mm -hmm. it's got uh, this. Uh, it, it you know every every single sequence and and the 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 peanut specials are very episodic. Like depending on how lazy the writers were, they're when they're they follow like the the four panel construction rhythm, which is really choppy, and it, it leads to a lot of like repeated information on the the uh, the more lazily put together ones. But the the Great Pumpkin, each one of the little episodes, uh, is brilliant, and and they're they're much bigger than you know the ostensible like little joke that that the comic strip would would contain like it's it's the most expansive philosophically of any of of the specials and it it seems to me to be kind of directly in dialogue with the christmas special which uh of course uh ends with uh with linus reciting the uh the passage uh from the bible about the true meaning of christmas which gets uh uh, tends to get interpreted as like a really like pro-Christian. We need to put the God back in Christmas message of of the story, which I don't think is was Charles Schultz's intended statement with the Christmas film. And I think the the way that he characterizes Linus in in the Great Pumpkin kind of gets to that. Where uh, in the other one he's like the the pro-religion guy, but in in Great Pumpkin he's the proselytizer for this like mythical uh, creature that only he believes in, and he has developed an elaborate mythology about him, where the Great Pumpkin will only appear if you believe in him, and you have right. to believe in him one hundred percent. If there's any doubt, if there's any sign of of hypocrisy in your pumpkin patch, then the Great Pumpkin won't appear. So every time he doesn't appear, it just confirms to Linus that he needs to be more, you know, more pure in his belief and more fundamentalist. Right. Which is really twisted and really dark and really <laughs> anti, you know, evangelical. Yeah, no, I, I remember uh, that kind of uh, struggle that he goes through um, from childhood and, and it being uh, it, heavy stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just some heavy duty stuff going on in there. <laughs> yeah, um, but there's also like great little jokes. Like there's the opening gag where, where Linus and Lucy bring this uh, giant pumpkin into the house. And then Lucy pulls out like this giant butcher knife and stabs it in the head and cuts off the top and starts pulling out the insides. And Linus freaks out. It's like, I didn't know you were going to kill it, <laughs> which is horrifying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then you have uh, uh, my favorite scene is uh, uh, Snoopy is in his uh, World War One fighting ace garb mm -hmm. throughout the film, and he goes into the Halloween party. And Schroeder is there. He's playing. It's a long way to Tipperary, 
and Snoopy starts dancing to the music and he's marching and he's very happy. And then Schroeder goes into like the sad kind of maudlin melodramatic song and Snoopy starts crying and, and bawling. And, and then, uh, uh, Schroeder goes into pack up your troubles in an old kit bag and it's all jaunty again. And Snoopy's dancing some more. And then, and then he goes into another sad song. So it's just, it's like this, uh, his moods are tied to the music in this kind of meta way that that movies use to kind of manipulate our emotions and Schroeder's doing it to Snoopy. I would like to point out uh, that you and I have very different uh, podcasting styles, the way we, the way we talk. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you're very monotone most of the time and I am very loud and annoying. Um, but I think this is the first time, Sean, that you had genuine emotion in your voice <laughs> after like 50 episodes. Like it was so adorable to hear you describing all of these scenes that you love so much from <laughs> The Great Pumpkin. Like you, there was, there was, uh, inflection there was you know emotion in in your voice and i think that's just wonderful i think that's just fantastic and i and i i'm glad that you shared that with me it's such Um, a great movie and i've watched it like eight times in the last two days and it's uh yeah it needs i need to move it up on my my list of the best films of that year yeah no, I look like I said. I look forward to, to rewatching it in a month. So uh, I'll give you my report once I do. Then um, <laughs> our person of the week this week. We, you know, we this is the Lauren Bacall tribute episode, as we said. But we did talk about her a bit a few episodes back um, when she passed. So um, we are going to talk about Louis Lumiere uh, on the occasion of his birthday um, as our person of the week this week. Um, so let's do that. <laughs> sure. Uh, they're, they're, uh, Louis Lumiere and his brother uh, August are were basically the first, you know, commercial filmmakers ever. Right around the same time as Thomas Edison, they kind of invented a a camera and they started shooting things, and then they started showing their films around eighteen ninety four. Basically, their their most famous film is probably the uh, the uh, uh, the workers leaving the factory, or maybe uh, the arrival of a train in the station. I think the train is probably the the most iconic. Yeah, I mean it's the one that comes to my mind. It's it's the one where it has like the myth around it, the where where they showed the movie and then the audience like you know ducked out of the way when the train arrived because. You know, apparently people in the 1800s were morons. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, the the workers leaving the factory actually might be my favorite because it's just it's like these movies are very short. They're like less than a minute long. And it is it's it's one, you know, static shot. They set the camera up and they record what happens and they're workers leaving the factory or is the train arriving in the station and uh i don't know they're they're really neat what do you what do you, are you uh are you a fan of of early early cinema at all yeah i mean i i don't know much of it i mean i know you know 
the the stuff that kind of everybody consumes or you see in clip shows and stuff like that, you know, the gun, you know, being fired um, towards the screen um, and all and all that good stuff. Um, I, I, I think that stuff is great and I would love to explore more of it. Um, it kind of goes back to what you said uh, in a previous episode with experimental cinema or something where, you know, like you said, these are all a minute, two minutes long. And so you see one, but you don't really take it all in and you can't really watch a bunch in succession really um, and get a good feel for it. You know, I've seen a few and I watched a few in anticipation for this show um, and, and I enjoy it. I love the time capsule quality of it. I love seeing um, the kind of first appearances of, of certain things that we take for granted now or that, you know, have just been assimilated. But at the, at one time they were, you know, revolutionary kind of things. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second with um, our picks here. But um, I yeah. love I love that stuff. I love early cinema. You know, um, of course, most of it is it was 20 years later that I saw, you know, or tw- you know, in the uh, teens and, and 20s. But um yeah, the, yeah, fantastic the, stuff. The, the Lumiere's are doing like the really, really early stuff. They, I think they, they kind of got out of the business fairly early on and went more on like the uh, kind of the inventor side of it and not really directing. Right. Um, I should have, you know, done some research, <laughs> but I didn't. But That's it's, but okay. it's, it, it's really these these early films that they're that they're most known for, and uh, it, it's interesting how kind of echoes of these earliest films still exist in, in films today. Like, uh, uh, did a documentary a few years ago called 24 city, which was about a, a factory in, in China and just kind of the generations of people that worked in this factory over the last you know, 60 years or so. And it's, it's punctuated by shots that look exactly like workers leaving the, the Lumiere factory. Mm-hmm. It's like the camera's in the same position and you see the workers walking out of the gate. And it's just, it's this kind of very primal attraction to motion pictures where of just watching things as they actually happened in the past that right. the, the Lumiere films invented, for lack right. of a better word. Right. And it's it's still appealing. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So, well, so, so what was tying with that? Yeah. So what uh, was your? So yeah, essential. our cinema essential is uh, so the rule was anything pre nineteen ten, and mine uh, my pick is not just a documentary type thing uh, of a train arriving or something. Uh, my film is from uh, nineteen hundred. Uh, it's a minute and forty five seconds long. Um, and it's called Explosion of a Motor Car. I don't know if you've seen this one, Sean. Um, Cecil M. Hepworth was the director of it. And uh, there, Hepworth did a, uh, several kind of comedic little things. There's another one um, that's pretty great um, called uh, How It Feels to Be Run Over, um, <laughs> which is pretty great. Um, I love the title of that. And uh, it's basically... Uh, that one's actually really interesting too, because it plays with your expectations. Because you see a, a a buggy coming down the street towards the camera, and since you know the title of the the film, 
uh, you're like, oh my gosh, this horse and buggy is going to run into the camera. But it actually doesn't. It goes to the side. And you're like, oh, that's weird. And then a motor car comes straight towards you and then runs, literally runs into the camera, um, which is hilarious. Uh, and I think what I read about that one is that's the first one to use inner titles or, or one of the first films to, to use actual like uh, words on the screen. Um, but Explosion of a Motor Car is a comedic um, uh, story. And it basically is uh, a car drives into the frame uh, on a quaint kind of street. Uh, and then using trick photography like Melier used, um, they they cut and make it look like the car exploded and a police officer is walking by and he looks up to the sky um, for several beats for, for quite a long time um, until random body parts start falling to the ground <laughs> of the people that were blown up in this motor car. Um and speaking of death proof, it actually kind of reminds me of death proof because he <laughs> he he grabs this you know severed leg off the ground and kind of throws it on the pile of the exploded car, um, and it's pretty it's pretty great it's pretty funny um, it's it's some pretty good stuff so uh, yeah that's my pick uh, what's yours yeah I love I love those those trick films like that the the Melia stuff is, is is really terrific I I think I've seen that one before uh, I took a, a silent film class in college and we watched a ton of these that I don't remember all of the ones that we watched because I I was bad at taking notes but uh, but my favorite early cinema film is is from 1901 and it's called uh, the Pan American Exposition by Night. Uh, it's directed by by Edwin S. Porter, who is most famous for for the Great Train Robbery, mm-hmm. uh, which came a couple years later. Uh, and he did this when he was working for for Edison. And it's the film was one minute long, and it's uh, it it's just one pan from I believe it goes from right to left, and it's it's just filming the Pan American Exposition out in in long shot. You see all the buildings and the pavilions and everything, and it, it starts in the daytime, and it slowly pans across, and then about halfway through, it fades to black, and then it comes back in, and it's the exposition at night, where it's all lit up by these, you know, electric lights. And it, it, it has the illusion of, like, one continuous pan, where it changes just from day to night, and, and the, you know, the world becomes magical all in one mm-hmm. minute. And I just, I love everything about that film. It's just the 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 single the single motion the 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 switch in in time in the span of a single shot uh in a single space uh it's just so cool i just i love it hey you've talked about that before at some point with me and i i really need to check that one out sometime because it does sound fantastic i really should should uh should dig that one. Um, and there are a lot of these great ones. And obviously, you know, if they still exist, they're on YouTube and they're easily found. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, th- these are really great. If, if a- anybody out there has their pick for something like that, I would love to know. So, you know, let us know by emailing us or, or hitting the Twitter or something like that. Cause, uh, these things are really interesting. And while I was like kind of researching for this episode, you know, I kind of went down a rabbit hole and, um, found some really interesting stuff you know i mean the 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 titles alone are just so great you know like explosion of a motor car or something like that where it's you know it just spells it out there for you and it totally delivers like i mean think of a movie nowadays that would would have a title that's so enticing that you have to go see it and then it totally lives up to its title it's rare nowadays but uh you know there will be blood i guess kind of 
did it, but uh, explosion of a motor car is pretty great. So, um, speaking speaking of of mediocre titles, yes, that's that was that was the segue (laughs) I was thinking of too. Uh, Our next film, speaking of bad titles, here's down with here's a clip from the film Down with Love. Hey, baby. I just uh, popped by for a little sex on the car. Catch your block. Gets anything he wants. Do you look for me? Barbara Novak. Here's to Bannerhouse's new number one author. Has everything she needs. And it's all in my book. Down with love, not sex. My book instructs women that love is a distraction. That book is ruining my life. All our wives are giving us trouble. You have to solve this catch. Squash her. All women want love and marriage. I'm going to write the expose of the century. And I am going to make Novak fall in love. Wow. You've never heard of my book, Down With Love? No, ma'am, I have not. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see you have an eyelash. In other words, crazy, isn't it? I can't stop thinking of you. I can't do this. You've got it bad. That is not good. everything I stand for. I've got her exactly where I want her. Or maybe you just like spending time with her. Uh, This is terrible. We're behaving just like two people in love. (gasps) Uh Uh-oh. Down with love. You. So, So I looked it up. While you while you were talking at at some point where I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying and uh, <laughs> uh, Great Pumpkin you mean the whole show Sean yeah pretty much uh, Great Pumpkin I currently have ranked as the the fourth best film of 1966 and the the three ahead of it are uh, Oh Hazar Balthazar the Good the Bad and the Ugly and Andre Rublev and those are are fine movies but I. I might have to move Great Pumpkin into the number one spot. All the way up. Yeah. Past them. Oh, my gosh. Those are some Titanic films, though. What a great year that was. That's some earth-shattering news from Sean Gilman. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, maybe maybe when my daughter starts watching Andre Rublev over and <laughs> over and over again, then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see the light there. Right, right. I give it a year. But anyway, uh, Down With Love. Down with Love, uh, yeah. Down with Love is a 2003 film. Uh, director Peyton Reed, um, and as we said earlier in our discussion of How to Marry a Millionaire, um, it kind of uses the uh, uh, Doris Day, Rock Hudson films of uh, the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s as a, as a template, uh, and it's 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 a, a loving homage, also a mocking homage of it. Um, basically. Uh, Renee Zellweger comes to New York. She's a uh, writer who's just publishing her first book called Down With Love. And it's a kind of a a book telling women to, you know, forego love, you know, um, 
become independent and you can have sex with anybody you want uh, once you reach stage three after, you know, loving chocolate. Uh, and you don't need men the way you think you need men. And uh, this is taken as a personal affront by Ewan McGregor, who plays a playboy, uh, international playboy type. He's a, a writer for a men's magazine that's not Playboy. Uh, it's called No. And uh, he decides to, he thinks it's hogwash, and he decides to manipulate, cheat, and lie um, to get Renee Zellweger's character to fall in love with him. And so he pretends to be an uh, all-American uh, astronaut, and uh, he goes to great lengths to, uh, to get her to fall for him. Uh, but there are a lot of twists and turns, and I don't want to explain everything that happens in this movie in the intro here. Um, but it's a, it's a pastiche of those, you know, Technicolor Doris Day movies um, with a lot of sexual innuendo and very winking at the audience. And um, a lot of sexual innuendo. A lot of sexual innuendo. Well, I think we'll discuss some of it uh, in particular as we get into this discussion. Um and this is a film that you've seen before. I'd never never seen it before. I'd been wanting to see it um, for many years because I, I love movies that do this kind of thing. Um, although I have some, there's some nitpicky things about the way this is done too. But um, I love movies that that you know work with a a bygone genre um, and update it for you know a new era or, or lovingly you know set the movie during a time period that's you know. Uh, evoked in bright colors and all those kinds of things. And so I was really interested in seeing this movie and I hadn't got to it. So I appreciate the uh, suggestion that we would get to it on this show. Um, and, but you had seen it before it had been, it'd been like 10 years though, since you'd seen it, Sean. Right? Yeah, we, we saw it, we rented it when it like first came out on DVD. So, so at least 10 years and, and my wife and I both liked it a lot then. Uh, but we, both thought it might be a musical. We weren't sure. We didn't remember if it was a musical or not. I was pretty sure it wasn't, uh, but she was convinced it was. And then we rewatched it, and it is not, in fact, a musical. It's, but it is kind of a musical. There's a the music plays a very heavy role in this, and there's a musical scene during the credits, obviously, of the yeah. two leads uh, singing, which is a wonderful scene. I I love that scene. I think it's just fantastic. Supposedly that was that was not originally planned, but uh, the fact was that that McGregor and and Zellweger had just done very successful musical films uh, with uh, Moulin Rouge and and Chicago. And so they decided to to sing a song over the closing credits to kind of capitalize on that. And it's done. It, the the style is done. You know, it's done. It's shot like it's on early '60s TV. Um, the editing style is is very much like that, and it's set on this you know expansive set. Uh, and it's great. It's adorable. Um, but I I feel like this movie this movie's more of a musical than um, How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, this movie juxtaposes. And uses different versions of of the same song throughout it to uh, convey different things, um, but yeah, there's no scenes where everybody breaks out into song and does a, a dance number and stuff like that. So you're right, right, technically it's not a musical, but it really feels like a musical through and through. Um, yeah, and I think I think the the same was the case with with How to Marry a Millionaire. Like uh, there are 
There's uh, at one point, uh, there's like a, a meta moment in How to Marry a Millionaire when, when in like the modeling scene where Marilyn comes out and, and the announcer says, everyone knows diamonds are a girl's best friend. Right. And, well, then, also... and then she walks out wearing diamonds and like, yeah, everyone knows that song. Right, right. <laughs> we just couldn't afford to play it. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I think this, for the most part, I have some quibbles and we'll dive into them, but um, there, there is a stretch of about an hour in the middle of this thing where I was just coasting on charm and pizzazz and chutzpah. And I mean, it was just a rocking good time, rollicking, fun, uh, the 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 dialogue is fresh and funny the the lovingly recreated world that this movie inhabits is so much fun to spend time with um and they get everything they 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 really took the time to get all the thing little things right um we talked about the costume design in how to marry a millionaire the costumes in this movie um are wonderful they're they're absolutely great. There's a scene where um, Renee Zellweger uh, and Sarah Paulson, who plays uh, her uh, agent or editor, um, walk into a restaurant, and one of them is wearing like a yellow coat with a plaid uh, skirt, and they walk in the room, and then they take off their coat, and it's like they're wearing the exact reverse of the other person. Really great stuff. Um, like How to Marry a Millionaire, there are a couple of clunkers in the costume design. Um, Renee Zellweger wears like a turban in the last scene, uh, <laughs> which is is done for uh, for plot, plot reasons. reasons. I know yeah. it's done for plot reasons, but it it's very distracting, <laughs> and I really didn't like it. Uh, it's kind of like the puffy sleeves uh, of of the thing, but um, you, you yeah. just you just have something against like like the Mediterranean look. The, yeah. Say, no, no, no pirates. No, no, <laughs> no Berbers. Right. Nothing. You found me out. Nothing from the Levant. No, <laughs> too flashy. Too flashy. Okay. Uh, but, but all the stuff that this movie employs, the costume design is wonderful. Uh, the use of like rear projection when characters are uh, in a car and they and they you know behind them it's footage you know '60s style rear projection footage. The use of split screens, uh, which. Uh, we'll go into that sexual innuendo. <laughs> yeah, it, it's probably the their dirtiest joke in the film is the the split screen one. Yeah, there's a conversation between the two of them on the phone uh, where they're basically miming every sexual act you can possibly imagine, uh, it, all innocently and enough. I mean, it, it's I, I feel a, like was, that joke was also done in like an Austin Powers movie, though. Maybe I don't know. I. I don't. I've only seen the first Austin Powers movie, um, yeah. and it's been a long time. But um, I guess but Austin, really Austin Powers did like the 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 tastefully hidden nudity mm. joke. I, I not the split screen one. Well, the, the split screen. I mean, on a technical level alone, like um, it's a wonder. Like it's really well done. Like it's uh, the timing between the two leads is is perfect in that in that section and uh it's hilarious and and ribald and just goofy and uh i i really really enjoy it. <laughs> um 
did you enjoy it the second time around? Did you find it as as enthralling as as you did the first time, or were you? Yeah, I I really didn't remember much about it. Like I remembered the the mood of the film and 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 you know the the kind of joy in in watching it. Uh, I didn't remember much about the plot. So it when it gets to like two thirds of the way through the film, there's a a twist, and I did not remember that twist at all. And uh. You know, it's like you said, you're kind of, you know, bouncing along with the film and you're just kind of, you know, enjoying it. It's fun. It's nice. And then this this twist happens and my mind is like, whoa, mind blown. <laughs> uh, it suddenly I... it suddenly becomes like like memento or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a great twist. Um, in theory, Um I, I really like it narratively. I like I like what it does with the characters and changes the power dynamics in the characters. Um, and I and I like the the attempt of of the way that it's told. Um, basically, I, I love that. I love the way Renee Zellweger she delivers this long monologue that kind of I recontextualizes see, everything she... else in the film. And I I love the way she does it. I think I think her delivery of it is perfect. Wow, because I I. I think she, I, I don't think she nails it. Like I, it's, it's one of the few flaws in this movie. Um, I, I don't think she does it right. I, mm. I think she needed more nuance to it. I think she needed to, to own it a little bit more. She seems a little hesitant or, or tentative while she's getting, it's basically, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a long monologue. Like you said, that's it, it's uninterrupted cut of like uh, three and a half minutes where she is basically just giving this huge soliloquy uh, of all of the events that have taken place. Right. And she, she's talking really fast and, and, and kind of robotically with, without, you know, without a lot of inflection. And I think that's, I think that's perfect. Like, I don't think it should be, I don't think there should have been anything more to that. Like it, cause the way she comes off, it's like borderline psychotic, which I think is, is totally appropriate. Yeah. I just, I basically, I hate to say it. I got a little bored (laughs) while she was saying it. Like I was in like, um, intellectually, I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't see that coming. Um, but for some reason her delivery in that scene uh, just it didn't really sell me on it, and uh, unfortunately, I mean it's it's a little hump. I mean it's not it's not uh, a deal breaker or anything. Um, I will go on record and say that I I I you know Renee Zellweger is not a favorite of mine. Um, I don't know if we talked about it when we talked about Chicago. Yeah, I uh, think I think uh, she did not come off well in our discussion of of that yeah. film. And I I think. In this movie, I think Ewan McGregor uh, acts circles around her. I think he's, I think Ewan McGregor is phenomenal in this movie. I really do. Um, I, I I do too, and I, I I think Ewan McGregor is 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 one of the the best actors around today, and I think this is one of his better performances. Uh, Renee Zellweger is not. Yes, <laughs> but I think. I think she's pretty good here, and I think this is probably the best I've ever seen her. I'll give you pretty good. I think she's pretty good for the vast majority of this movie. I just think that when that scene takes place, she just doesn't stick it, and and it 
and it just doesn't work quite right for me. Um, but she's great in, in most the rest of the movie. Um, you know, when she's doing the playful stuff, I think she's she's fine. She's she's totally fine. Um, it's it's I, still it strikes me as weird. You know, ten years later, that there was a time where Renee Zellweger was the biggest romantic comedy star in Hollywood. It's really funny because when I was preparing for this uh, discussion, I. I was like, what happened to Renee Zellweger? And she literally has like, I don't know, you know, I don't follow gossipy stuff. I don't know if there's any gossipy stuff, but she hasn't done, she hasn't worked in like five years. Really? I mean, she, yeah, she has not done anything. Like the last thing she did um, acting wise was in 2010. She was in a movie called My Own Love Song. Hmm. Um, and she's got, she's got a credit that's coming out next year, but that's a long period of, of inactivity. And prior to that, the last thing of note that she was in that I know of was Appaloosa, which was 2008. So she really kind of just disappeared, um, it yeah, seems like. I think, uh, I think she kind of went into that, that gray zone area that, that happens to actresses in Hollywood where they're allowed to be in movies where they're young and they're allowed to be in movies where they're old, but they're not allowed to be in movies when they're middle-aged. Yeah, no, I could see that. Um, yeah, like you saw uh, uh, Meryl Streep fell into that like same gap in the nineteen nineties. Like she was in everything in the eighties, and then she just kind of disappeared for a decade. And now that she's old, she's in everything again. Right. So maybe we'll see a, a Renee Zellweger come back. Well, you just put Meryl Streep and Renee Zellweger in the same <laughs> sentence, which I think may be the first. Um, I don't worry. But she was worry. in the early two thousands. She, you know, she was. Oh, I know Bridget She was Jones. huge. Yeah, you yeah. know, coming off of Jerry Maguire in the mid nineties. But there was Bridget Jones, Chicago, Cold Mountain, and then Down with Love. And Down with Love was not a hit. Yeah, which is but a, a it should damn have been. Shame. It, it really, it really should have been. This is a really fun movie that. Um, it just gets everything right, and I just—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's easy to understand why it was not a hit. I was though. just about to say that. I—it's—it's it's so easy to see why this didn't work with uh, the general public. Um, one, um, like we said, I think I like—it's uh, really frank, you know, in in its uh, depiction of sex and the battle of the sexes and all this stuff it gets into some some territory that like american studio films don't really like americans really shy away from sex a lot and this movie is just like it's i mean it's just sexual frustration like for like 90 solid minutes and it's hilarious um yeah and it's it's really anti uh it really kind of it exposes a lot of the the patriarchal structures of American society, and you know I don't want to make it sound like a you know like a political rant, but it's it's very uh, trenchant in the way it makes fun of the men who rule American society. Oh, absolutely, and it's a blast! It's a blast while it's doing it too. It's yeah. not boorish or anything. It's not like it, um, it. You know, it does it with a wink and a smile, but it. Uh, but it's got some serious, you know, stuff to say here. Yeah, and it's, it's stuff that, that is still going on today. You know, 60, 60 years, 50 years after. 60. You know. Right. Yeah. Well, no, you know, you're right, because it takes place in 62. Yeah, whatever. it takes place yeah, in yeah, 1962. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was uh, 50 years after, you know, the, the film ostensibly takes place, and, and 10 years after 
it was actually released. But, uh, yeah. But it's not strident about any of that. No, 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 not at all. Um, I, I like it when it's, when it's, those are its targets actually. Like, um, when it's, when it is attacking like, uh, patriarchal society and, and, and the real meat and potatoes of, of the plot and stuff. Um, my other minor quibble with this, um, is, and this happens a lot when there are movies that are set in a, in a previous time period where there's this kind of winking from the uh, creators uh, about the, you know, life life in the past. Like, oh, look, everybody's smoking. And all those, like, really cheap kind of, you know, jokes that that they kind of stretch out of those things. And the beginning of this movie, and it's very short. It's like the first five minutes or whatever. It's just kind of setting up that world. Kind of does a few of those things, which got me a lot of, got, got me, scared actually a little bit about this movie because i thought the movie was going to be just that for the whole thing and luckily it's not but uh but it does do those things in the beginning and it's a real eye roll for me because it's so obvious and anybody can do it you know um so luckily once it actually decides to actually tackle some serious uh issues of the day um then it's just it's it's humming i mean it's just great um i love the supporting cast as well. And I think that their stories are just as interesting to the plot and to the, the kind of themes of the movie. Um, obviously it's kind of their, their David Hyde Pierce's character who plays kind of the, uh, right hand man to, uh, Ewan McGregor. Um, the, his the, story, the, the Tony Randall role, right. And Tony Randall is also in this too, as, as well. Yeah. Um, briefly. As, as like the the most patriarchal of all the patriarchs, which, <laughs> which is, is hilarious. Great. It's just it's just <laughs> wonderful casting. Uh, it's just really great. Um, but there's the duality. You know, this movie um, is constantly showing you mirror images, or you know, um, it'll end a scene with a elevator door closing, and then cut to a different character in a different place with an elevator door opening, there's all this twinning going on. And it, and it happens as well with the characters where David Hyde Pierce's character is this very nebbish kind of, um, uh, you know, uncomfortable around women, doesn't know uh, how to speak to them or whatever. And um, his story trying to woo Sarah Paulson, but getting all of the wrong information because Ewan McGregor's telling him to act like him, which is a, you know, chauvinistic, you know, Lothario and to see all of that stuff just go completely haywire is, is so much fun. And so funny, like the scene where (laughs) it's ridiculous, but the scene where he takes her back to the bachelor pad and is flipping all these switches and like the 1812 overture, you know, bursts out of the the stereo system. Yeah, records are... Like, why, why is Ewan McGregor listening to the 1812 overture? <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's silly and goofy. Um, all that stuff is great. It really yeah. is a, a whole lot of fun. We we talked about, about CinemaScope with, uh, with How to Marry a Millionaire. And, and like I said, uh, uh, this film opens with that old fox logo with the the old cinemascope display and and i i rented this on uh amazon instant and it has that and it's in cinemascope and then the rest of the movie is 185 
until it gets to the end credits, which are in CinemaScope again. No, they actually like they they put the the CinemaScope thing in scope. Yep. <laughs> That's like even worse. That's like a bigger slap in the face than if it would like cut off the like C and the I and the P and the E or whatever. Well, they used just... they used to do that with back in the in the pre HD days they used to do that with with movies they would show the opening credits in widescreen and then cut to the pan and scan version because you'd have to show the opening credits in widescreen because uh the words would be cut off right if you if you cropped it to show yeah uh, exactly yeah right so Uh, so you'd you'd start watching a movie and you'd see it in widescreen so you're like hey it's widescreen that's great and then you so you watch all the credits and then it it like zooms out to this pan and scan image and you're like fuck you bastards because you know they have the technology and they are capable of doing it letterboxed but they just chose not to and now they're doing the same thing with with scope movies on on streaming platforms and i think we talked about this before but it's it's the worst thing ever. It's that's horrible. I, yeah. I I I saw it on DVD in the proper aspect ratio, and it was wonderful, beautiful to look at, gorgeous, yeah. and uh, I ate it up. So and, I'm and I'm really sorry for you. The the weird thing about this is is as we're about halfway through the movie, I I I turn to my wife and I say, "Don't I own this on DVD?" <laughs> and she's like, "Yeah, you do." So I went up, you know, we recently moved, so, uh, you know, everything is kind of out of order. I don't have all of my DVDs alphabetized by, by genre yet. Um, I look around on all of my shelves where, as I assume, all of my DVDs are, and I couldn't find it. <gasps> so we both thought that I have it, but it doesn't appear to be there. So I don't know if there's like another box of DVDs that I haven't unpacked yet, or if I loaned it to somebody and they haven't returned it, but... That yeah. tends to, that tends to be what happens with me is I will loan something to somebody, and I don't get why people just will keep things forever and ever. I mean, I kept your Jimmy Stewart box set, but I would tell you that I had your Jimmy Stewart box set. But yeah. there, well, are people I, that I still I w- have your your Hitchcock's music book. I think. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I will lend something to somebody, and then like four years later, I'll be like, "Hey, wait, don't I own Dead Man?" And then I'm like, "Where the fuck is Dead Man?" You know, and I have no idea. I know I had it at some point. I don't know where it went. Um, that's the worst. Yeah, that's I'm, the absolute worst. And I'm pretty. I'm. I'm. I'm certain I remember because it, it's got a pink box, so it's like really distinctive. It's right. not the normal black DVD box. So, well, yeah. I'd like to. I'd like to point out on, on that tangent. Aaron, uh, our friend Aaron Campo. I used to play in a band with him, and uh, we worked with him at the the movie theater for many years. Um, I loaned him a bunch of stuff over the years cassettes of you know interesting music and uh comics and uh probably some movies too you know a bunch of stuff you know and uh i i ended up t- talking to his wife at one point and saying hey, can aaron give me back my stuff or whatever <laughs> um and and she got back to me and she said oh don't worry it's all in a box and I'm like, why do you have a box at your house, like labeled Mike's stuff that you just like keep there for like, it's been like seven or eight years now. And I'm like, what, why do you still need that CD I loaned you? Can't you just rip it and then give it back to me? Uh, but there's like some sort of stalemate where I'm not getting my stuff back. But anyway, he doesn't listen to this show, so it's not going to change anything. But anyway, um, well, if anyone, if anyone listening to the show has my my copy of Down with Love, I I would like it back. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, this movie is directed by Peyton Reed, um, 
And I wanted to just bring this up briefly. Uh, I haven't seen any of his other movies. I know you've seen The Breakup. I remember we ran that at the Metro. Um, I've seen The Breakup and uh, Bring It On also. Yeah. Um, and he, so anyway, we, we talked a while back, um, about my excitement and anticipation for, uh, Ant-Man, the new Marvel movie that was going to be directed by Edgar Wright. And I'm not a big Marvel fanboy. I've seen like four of those movies, but, um, I was really excited because of Edgar Wright and Paul Rudd and all that stuff. Um, and then we never talked about it on the show, but but Edgar Wright left the production uh, over a dispute with Disney uh, about the way that the the plot was going to go and or whatever the story that he had spent years working on. Anyway, he got pulled off the project, and I said, "Well, screw that noise! I am boycotting Ant Man." But they actually uh, put Peyton Reed in as the uh, the director, and having seen Down with Love now. I kind of want to give Ant-Man a chance. <laughs> like, I think, I think that might be worthwhile. Like, I don't know. I thought he was going to, it was going to be a hack that they would install. And, you know, maybe it's a gun for hire thing. I don't know. He's done a lot of TV credits in the last few years. Um, well, well, if, if that's not enough for you, how about the fact that he directed all 13 episodes of the weird owl show? Yeah. I was going to mention that. I totally forgot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've seen all 13 episodes of the Weird Al show. So really? this guy, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even know it existed. Oh, the Weird Al show is great. <laughs> oh my God. It's really fun. Um, this is well, the I'm second sure. show in a row. We've talked about Weird Al cause UHF's coming out on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, he also directed, or he did segments on uh, Mr. Show too. So sure. the guy, the, you know, guys, guys talented. So I, you know, I might actually go see Ant-Man, uh, when it comes to the drive-in, uh, whenever the hell that happens. So yeah, the, um, the, the breakup and, and bring it on are both, are both really good too. Yeah. So, Hey, what do you know? Um, yeah. So that's our discussion, uh, that went off on crazy tangents, um, about down with love, but it's a great movie and you should check it out. If you haven't, it's really underrated and, uh, more people should be talking about it. I think, uh, we're going to listen to some more Sinatra now. Uh, this is also from songs for young lovers. Uh, this is, appropriately enough, uh, like someone in love. Lately, I find myself out gazing at stars. Hearing guitars Like someone in love Sometimes the things I do Astound me Mostly whenever I seem to walk as though I had wings Bump into things like someone in love 
Each time I look at you I'm limp as a glove And feeling like someone in love All right, uh, thanks, Frank. Uh, I feel like we, we probably should have played more Sinatra, but you have like this weird biological reaction <laughs> to, to Frank. For some reason, but I do. I I didn't know I was gonna let this out on the show, but before before we recorded the show, uh, you suggested Sinatra, and I said that's fine. And then you asked me what songs, and I uh, I said that I don't have an opinion because I can't listen to Frank Sinatra. And the story behind that is is about six or seven, eight. I don't know, se- several years ago. Uh, I was getting into a Sinatra phase. I was like, yeah, I'm kind of digging Frank Sinatra now, you know. Um, and it coincided with a, a new kind of, I don't know, infatuation with uh, ginger ale as a beverage. Uh, I don't know why those two went hand in hand. I guess it's an old man thing. But uh, so I was, you know, for a little while, I was heavily listening to Sinatra and drinking ginger ale. But then I got really sick. Like really, really sick. I it was like a flu, but it was like you know tenacious. It stuck around, um, and for some reason, uh, I equate my illness with Sinatra and ginger ale now. And I haven't had a sip of ginger ale since then, and I haven't listened to Frank Sinatra since then. So, uh, I yeah, the you know, the, it's a mental block with me. <laughs> yeah, that's really weird. Well, it, you know, it happens to me when I get sick. Like I. When I when I'm ill, I don't want to like read a book. Like I'm if I'm at home from work for a couple of days, like I have books that I would like to read, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get the ickiness of the illness tied in with the book that I'm enjoying. So I just end up watching like reruns of Seinfeld for like days. But anyway, um, yeah. Well, I I think I think it was really great for for this episode because because like we're saying, like these these films kind of run the the length of this particular decade from from Millionaire in 53 and uh, Down With Love, which is set in 62. Mm-hmm. And and to me, like like Sinatra, is, especially these albums that he was doing at the time, like Silence for Young Lovers, uh, uh, In the Wee Small Hours, uh, Songs for Swingin' Lovers, uh, are kind of define the music of that decade to me. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think it fits together really well. And just the, the weird serendipitous fact that it, it that the recording was on the same day that Millionaire was released. It just yeah, that's really weird. Yeah, very I, it's just it's uh, it's very cool. Entirely appropriate, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, next time on the show, which is going to be around October seventeenth, uh, we're actually going to get to uh, a twenty fourteen film, uh, which I think is this the first twenty fourteen film we talked about this year, or uh, besides the Sif stuff that we did. Yeah, uh, Snowpiercer we're counting as twenty thirteen. Under the skin, too. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, so uh, David Fincher's Gone Girl is coming out uh, very soon. And so we're going to try and get to that before the next show uh, and also talk about The Vanishing, which uh, we had planned this, uh, uh, what, about a week ago or something, uh, that that was going to be our next show. And then what happened, Sean? Uh, the director of The Vanishing sadly died. <laughs> and going back to our Metro Classic days, uh, 
remember we ran what was it did we run blow up and then antonioni died yes <laughs> and and uh and we were going to run like Seven Seal and then Bergman died because the, the two of them died like at the same time. And we were all worried about Spike Lee because we were doing his movie <laughs> next. So, <laughs> But Spike's OK. So and yeah. he's still still around there. So that's good. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be our next show. Uh, keep an eye out for that. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, if you are in the meantime down in uh, Santa Monica area, the American Cinematheque Aero Theater um, is actually tying in with the show, doing a Lauren Bacall series. It's a brief one, uh, just a few double features in a row, starting on the 3rd of October, which is hopefully the day that we post this episode. Um, They're going to run To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep on the 3rd, How to Marry a Millionaire on the 4th, uh, Key Largo and Dark Passage on the 5th. So um, you can go out and check out those movies uh, if you're down in Santa Monica. That's very cool. If you are in Seattle, you should go to the Grand Illusion Theater. You should just go there in general. Just hang around whether they're showing a movie or not. (laughs) Um, Just sit on the steps. (laughs) But uh, starting uh, starting mid October, starting October seventeenth, they're going to start running some some horror movies from from Halloween, and uh, opening up their their Halloween series is uh, a double feature of Jacques Tenor Val Luton films, Cat People, and I Walked with a Zombie, which are two of of Tenor's best films, and they're two they're probably two my favorite of of all of the the Luton horror films, and they're just fantastic. Like cat people is about a woman who thinks that if she has sex, she'll turn into a cat monster. And I walked with a zombie is an adaptation of, uh, of Jane Eyre set in, uh, in like a plantation in Haiti with like voodoo and stuff. So I love those. I love those voodoo horror movies from that era, you know, like, um, white zombie Mm -hmm. or wait, is it white zombie? The one with white zombies. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's a, that's a genre we're not getting much of anymore. Um, but uh, probably for for very good reasons. <laughs> but uh, but they're fun. They're weird. You know, they're yeah. really weird. Um, yeah. So yeah, they're they're playing them. They're playing them both in in thirty five millimeter. So yeah. well, and they're also doing. Uh, I think really close to Halloween, they're doing an Italian horror triple feature pizza party. Um, yeah, <laughs> which sounds all right. Pretty, yeah, to this here, pretty freaking awesome. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't yeah. say what movies they're playing though. Yeah, I don't think they've decided yet, but yeah. I think they're getting prints from um, good old what's his face, uh, the guy that does the uh, kung fu grindhouse stuff that they do there annually. Where we saw, where I saw uh, the victim actually uh, last year when you were out of town. Um, so yeah, Grand Illusion rules. Everybody else drools. Um, so you can find us online at the George Sanders show.blogspot.com. We just actually updated the calendar to a degree uh, for the rest of the year. So if you go to the uh, upcoming shows page, um, you can see at least the themes of what we're going to be doing. We're going to do some Bollywood stuff finally. Uh, we're going to do a Halloween episode of sorts. Um, and then we're going to get to our, as we mentioned before, 80, 1984 episode. We're going to do a Bob Dylan episode. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipeline uh, for the rest of the year. So you can follow that on our website. Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, well, Sean's on Twitter at uh, the Geo Sanders. Or wait, what is it? Geo Sanders Show. Yeah. Um, and 
let's see what else. Oh, we have an email, uh, the George Sanders show at gmail.com. Uh, you know, follow Sean. Uh, what's your Twitter handle, Sean? At the end of cinema. Ah, there you go. There's, there's synergy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean, you know, oh, wait, this is going to be posted. Never mind, cut this part. Because <laughs> I was going to say, follow him while he's in Vancouver. <laughs> but that doesn't make sense because this will be posted. Oh, you, no. Yeah. You, can, you can follow me the last two days that I'm in Vancouver. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, without further ado, uh, you know, I, you know, Frank Sinatra, what, you know, most everybody, you know, would consider him one of the greatest crooners of all time. Uh, my stomach accepted. But, uh, you know, he doesn't hold a candle to George Sanders. So we're going to let George take it away this this show, um, as he always should. So we'll see you in October. Goodbye. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world Always welcome lovers as time.